And it was just one of those moments in journalism where you know you have to decide. Where are we on this? Can we, are we just going to be wishy-washy on it? And so I got a copy of the decision and read it, and, and it was just clear that we would support the decision. And so there we were, the die was cast. Welcome to The Portable Humanist, the podcast where you can listen to Vermont Humanities Talks and learn when you're on the go. I'm Ryan Newswanger. David Motes was the editorial page editor at the Rutland Herald when he won the Pulitzer Prize in 2001 for his editorials about civil unions for same-sex couples. He later wrote a book, Civil Wars, A Battle for Gay Marriage. Yvonne Daly worked at the Herald with David for 17 years. She recently sat down with him to discuss the debates about marriage equality in Vermont and to consider the role the press plays in a democracy. Their conversation is part of our Democracy 2020 Fall Conference. You can view all of the recorded conference sessions for free at vermonthumanities.org democracy. Here's Yvonne. So David, I'm, I'm just delighted to have this on and to talk to you about this book because all this time that we've been together, we didn't really have a sit-down conversation about it until fairly recently. You are winning the Pulitzer Prize for your coverage of the issue brings to mind the very subject of these talks, which is democracy and journalism's role in protecting democracy. And I hope these are all issues we'll get to today. It's great to talk with you. We worked so long together, uh, you covering the news, me sometimes editing your stories, and then later moving to the editorial page and maybe writing an editorial about your stories. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, one of the things that I'd like to start with is why this issue was of such interest to you and to the state, why it had so much power that it was the issue of the, of the years for quite a long period of time as it evolved through its various stages, the issue being that of uh, civil union. The issue of uh, gay marriage, freedom to marry, marriage yes. equality, um, uh, it, it hit the state in a big way in the year 2000 when the Baker decision came down. Mm -hmm. But um, those of us who were covering the news knew that this was an ex extremely volatile issue going back at least uh, 10 years or more. Um, you remember the what went on in 1992, which was uh, eight years before civil unions, there was a huge battle in the legislature mm -hmm. over a law to bar discrimination against people because of sexual orientation. And it was, and that's when I first started writing editorials in the Herald, and I remember that at the time it was quite an introduction because that issue riled people up to an extreme degree, I used to, there was one person in particular who used to write very angry letters to the editor. She would call me on the phone, very angry against any kind of special uh, law for uh, gay people. And, um, and it was during that time that there was a vicious, vicious beating outside the bar in uh, Burlington called Pearls. And which sort of tipped the balance in the legislature. And you remember David Walk, uh, later president of Castleton University, was running for lieutenant governor that year. And he had been in the, he was in the Senate. That's right. And he voted for the anti-discrimination law. 
and he faced bitter uh, opposition on the campaign trail running for lieutenant governor, and he lost. Um, so there were bitter feelings going all the way back then, and so we knew that gay rights, the issue upset people for a lot of reasons, and so through the course of the 90s, you know, as the Freedom to Marry movement, we knew this was sort of boiling in the, beneath the surface. Do you remember the Heather Has Two Moms controversy in Rutland? I do, because I was on duty that Saturday when one of our local readers came in with the book, Outraged, that this book would be in the public library, and I went to talk to one of the priests that day, and this became quite an issue that I had then to cover for a long time, to the point that the, the library held a public meeting on it. Yeah. Yeah, they had, it may have been two public hearings, I'm not sure, maybe just one up in the big meeting room at the, um, at the library, and people were angry that a, a book uh, for kids on the library shelf dealt with the fact that there would be two, uh, lesbian partners raising a kid. It was called Heather Has Two Moms, and, and I wrote editorials about that, um, just trying to show people that there are different ways of thinking about things, you know, uh, and I, I defended the library's uh, decision to have it on the shelf and so on, but it was all part of what was building. And of course, through those years, as we learned, the Freedom to Marry Task Force was slowly going out and meeting with people and building, starting to build a case for freedom to marry, which was very hard thing to do. And, you know, the, um, the people involved with that told stories about, you know, setting up a booth at the Tunbridge World's Fair and, you know, confronting all kinds of people who would come up and talk to them. And, um, and, and it, was, it was a scary thing to do in a lot of ways and also rewarding because they would have supporters who come up and talk to them. And, man, mm -hmm. yeah, that's the hard work of social change. It was interesting to me that um, Susan Murray was actually an accident that she saw about the, a car accident that led her to form that um, organization. Yes, I remember that. I, um, and I, I described that in a book about uh, a couple, two women and their child. Uh, terrible car accident in Menden? Yes. Or, or, it yeah. was. Yeah. <clears throat> on Route 4. And I remember when that happened, and Vito uh, Sturinska saw a long time photographer took pictures of this terrible accident. And, and so we saw what was happening, and uh, we had stories about the legal battle that ensued because uh, one of the women died. I think it was the the birth mother died. The birth mother died. And yes. her partner wanted to keep custody of their, their child, child. And the parents of the birth mother fought it in court. And it was a very, right. very tough thing. And it was Susan Murray, one of the lawyers in the Freedom to Marry Task Force, who noticed that story. Right. And she had been aware of the family issues that gay couples dealt with. 
because they didn't have any legal rights. And so that really inspired her. And interestingly, um, when I was writing the book, uh, years after, several years after the Civil Unions Bill became law, I went up to visit the mother and her new partner, uh, who they live in the, up in Franklin County in, I believe, the town of Bakersfield. And uh, rural setting, and there was the boy who had just been a, an infant during this car crash. And he was a really nice teenage boy. And, you know, I was up there to talk about the whole story and he'd heard it all before a thousand times, but he was just happy to be there with his, his mom and uh, because the woman won her case or the parents, the grandparents gave up on the battle. But anyhow, that was, yes, part of the story. So this is in part why you knew that this story was such an important issue, not just here in Vermont. And you've got to, as we're having this conversation, talk about the role that Vermont played nationally in this debate as the first state to say that uh, same-sex couples should have the same rights as, as heterosexual couples to marry and to, to have children and, and all of that. But I'm really interested in, first of all, the elements of the story that made it so essential to you that you spent so much time on it as an editorial writer, and then bringing that to writing your Pulitzer Prize winning editorials and then the book. Given this background that we've just been talking about, right. we knew that when the Baker decision came down from the Vermont Supreme Court, it was going to be a big deal. And the Baker decision, remember, was the case where the Freedom to Marry Task Force uh, um, arranged, found uh, three uh, couples uh, to uh, uh, two pairs of women and one pair of men, Stan Baker being one of the plaintiffs in the case had his name on it. And they all went to try to get a marriage license from their right. town clerks in Shelburne and in Milton and in uh, Burlington. I can't remember what the other, uh, but uh, they were all denied uh, uh, marriage licenses because the town clerk said, uh, we just not authorized to. And so the, they sued and the, the, the lawyers argued it went all the way to the Vermont Supreme Court, and it had been almost a, it had been about a year after the case had been argued in the Supreme Court that it finally came down on, I think it was December 20th, uh, 1999. I, can't, I was in the newsroom, a quiet morning in the newsroom, the decision came out, and, and it was just one of those moments in journalism where you know you have to decide. You have to... Uh, where are we on this? Can we, are we just going to be wishy-washy on it, or are, where are we on this? And so I had to write an editorial um, about the decision that came out that day, which found that uh, gay and lesbian couples have equal right to the the rights and benefits of marriage, but 
it would be up to the legislature to determine how those rights would be provided, either through marriage license or through something else, some other domestic partnership thing. The term civil union hadn't been devised yet. And so I got a copy of the decision and read it, and, and it was just clear that we would support the decision. And I think the headline on the editorial was a brave ruling. And so there we were, the die was cast. That was our position. And so uh, it was clear to me in, in the coming months, from January through April, as the legislature wrestled with this, we had to stay on the issue. We wouldn't pound it mercilessly. We would write an editorial when an editorial would be useful to clarify something, to promote something, to push something, to congratulate somebody, to fortify somebody, but not always hammering it. It's important to note the difference between the news pages and the editorial pages. On the news pages, we, the reporters, were covering the issue as it was unfolding with various events, both in the legislature and uh, demonstrations and people uh, on both sides <clears throat> with, you know, balance and um, equal coverage in taking on the role of, of covering this, of writing about it in the editorial page, though you had a bit of a different position. Yes. Um, and it's interesting to note that I learned what I learned about what was happening by reading the paper, just like a reader. <laughs> so I, I often uh, viewed myself as kind of a stand-in for the reader. So the reader reads the news, and then the reader says, what do I think about it? And I would read the news. I would read the stories about the committee hearings or whatever, and I would say, what do I think about it? And then... I would go through my thought process, and, and I had a point of view, and, and um, I had to uh, share that point of view and share how I had come to that point of view, and tensions were so high that in my mind, I wanted to do what I could not to inflame the tensions and to, to just have, provide a reasonable voice to show why civil unions made sense. And in that vein, one of the editorials that I wrote during that time had a headline called A Charitable View. And it was said, okay, people are at each other's throats on this, but what if you each side looked at the other side and took a charitable view of it? And here's how you would take a charitable view of those opposed to civil unions. And I, um, I've said that, I don't think I said in the editorial this, I didn't say it in the editorial, but you know, I was raised Catholic, my mother was Catholic. Um, I knew the Catholic point of view about sexuality and, and homosexuality and all that stuff. I could understand it, it's a legitimate point of view, it's real, it's, it's worthy of respect. Work that into an editorial. I still supported civil unions, but so try to, try to just maintain this kind of respectful tone. Opponents uh, didn't like it. Uh, they viewed me as on the other side, and I was in a way, but that, that's the role of an editorial writer. Um, supporters 
were heartened. I learned later, they said, boy, your editorials really helped because, you know, sometimes we thought we were all alone up there. And um, so I learned that later. But basically, I was a guy who read the newspaper and then wrote what I thought about it the next day. And I wasn't in on it. I, I didn't have the inside story. I was uh, uh, a reader like others. What I really loved about the book, now moving from the editorials to the book, was how you brought it to the human level, how we really got to know these people who, I mean, their lives were in turmoil throughout this period of time on both sides, and how you made them so come alive on the page. And, and what not just they went through, but the people around them to a certain extent as well, the communities themselves in which this was happening. Well, yes, and uh, like I said, when I was writing the editorials, I was just responding to the news. Mm -hmm. When it came to writing the book, I knew I had to, to get to the people who were making the news. And right. I didn't know them. I, I, it was all new to me, but they were kind enough to let me into their homes and sit down and talk to me at great length. And I learned a lot about what went into the whole story and the struggles. And, and um, you know, when I started the book, I didn't know who the central character would be. I thought maybe it'd be Stan Baker, the plaintiff. Maybe mm -hmm. it'll be Beth Robinson, the lawyer. It turned out to be Bill Lippert, the house member, the one openly gay house member at the time, who uh, must have sat for about 10 hours of interview at his home in Heinsberg. And very gracious, very open, very honest person. And uh, he told stories going back to the 70s when he was coming out as a gay man and the, the beginnings of the gay rights movement and so on. And, and, then, um, and then finally culminating in his very much lauded speech on the floor of the House the day that the House voted for civil unions. It was, uh, extremely emotional moment and kind of a high point of the whole story. Um, and yeah, but th then there were other people like um, House member from Rutland, Diane Carmoli, right. Democrat, Catholic. Catholic. She said that after she voted for civil unions, she couldn't even go to her the same church anymore because she was kind of blackballed, you know, and she went to a different church. She continued to go to mass and so on. But she was a, a real... Uh, integral part of her community, but she suffered when she lost her house seat, as did a right. bunch of others. And so in writing the book, I got the human story and uh, the, the story of the six plaintiffs and how they made their trip down to their town clerk office to, and who they were in their history. And so it was great to learn those stories. And um, but then there was also the constitutional and legal and political story and uh, one of the um, phrases I used in the book that I like which is key to understanding the whole thing was that this whole story was democracy on a human scale right and and um, I think the uh, activists for gay rights thought Vermont would be a good place to pursue gay marriage or marriage equality uh, um, because democracy could unfold on a human scale like this, and people would encounter their own their neighbors, and they would learn about their neighbors, and and realize that well, their neighbor's gay and wants to live with their partner, and 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 why shouldn't they marry? And 
they have to people come to terms with all this stuff. And, and uh, so, and I learned a lot of the ins and outs of uh, the political struggle and the origins of the certain term civil unions happened in a house committee when somebody said, well, how about civil unions? And, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's so interesting because in the next year after, um, after the law passed, people were thinking, you know, the world's going to come to an end, and really not that much changed, in, only for the people whose lives were affected. It, it didn't hurt the opponents. It didn't change their lives. And that's how democracy and change happens, is that we evolve, we learn, we grow, and we see what the impacts are. And then you respond to the impacts if they're negative. But that didn't have to happen. Right. Uh, the, the, um, the statement that was often made was after civil unions happened, <coughs> well, the sky didn't fall. You know, there are a lot of bitter people who opposed it, and they're still angry, and so on. You know, the whole Take Back Vermont movement, which happened during the election that followed, there was, was, the state was quite divided, and there was a lot of anger, and, you know, kind of foreshadowed what's going on today in, in many ways. Um, uh, but um, but the sky didn't fall. Uh, there was a state had to take a breather. Even the supporters of marriage equality had to take a breather. They wanted they didn't get full marriage equality. They got civil unions, which right. they thought was a compromise. And so, but they had to take a breather. You know, the House switched. Republicans took control of the House after That's after, right. the, after that election. Uh, and so there was a bit of a a lull in the whole thing, and and um, and then, but then after a few years, the leader of the marriage task force got back to work and said, "We want full marriage equality, not civil unions, which is something short of marriage." And uh, gradually, they began to work again, and then, uh, if you remember the politics of that. Jim Douglas was governor, right. Republican. Peter Shumlin was a, a president pro tem of the Senate. He thought we, it's time to push for marriage equality, and so he did, and it passed. Right. And Douglas vetoed it. And then the vote. <laughs> and then, and then. Uh, the Senate overrode the veto. Would the House override it? It was, it was very uncertain. And they were going to have an override vote. And um, I wasn't covering it as a news reporter, but I had been writing editorials and so on. And so I wanted to go up for the override vote as to be overridden by two thirds majority. And I got there a little late. And uh, the doors to the House chamber were already closed, and they'd begun the roll call. And the lobby right outside the House chamber was packed full of people. And you could hear Shap Smith, the House Speaker, call the names, you know, and people say, aye, nay, aye, nay. And people are kind of keeping track. And, and it was, uh, it was, no one knew what would happen. And, um, Finally, it came down, and he announced the um, the, the total. It was a hundred for and fifty against. So 
And as soon as he announced it, the whole place erupted in pandemonium because it didn't ha it wasn't a bill that had to be signed. Just with that vote and the bang of the gavel, it became law. Right. And people all of a sudden realized, it's law. We've been fighting this for 20 <laughs> years. It's law. Right now, all of a sudden, this minute. And and Shap Smith banged his gavel and tried to create order. House will come to order, but it was impossible. And then they threw the doors open, everybody was hugging and crying and everything else. And, and so I was there for that. And after having been through the whole thing for years up until that, it was it was quite a dramatic moment, quite gratifying. So our overarching subject is democracy and democracy in action and journalism's role in all of that. So maybe we'll talk a little bit about that. I always, when I, especially when I worked at, at the newspaper, I thought of journalism as the journal of a community, that we were keeping the daily diary of the community in all those ways. So now we have all of these news sources, and people don't read the morning newspaper and listen to the evening news in the same way that they did when I was growing up, and maybe when you were growing up, and until you know, fairly recent times with the proliferation of so many talking heads and uh, talk shows and talk radio and all of that. So tell me a little bit about what you think about the role of journalism today and whether we're doing the kind of journalism that we need. I think there's a lot of good journalism going on. I think it's probably more confusing for readers, for mm -hmm. the regular citizens of the country to know where to go for, for the news. You know, the, um, the, the, uh, we were talking about this before, how, how news reporters in professional mainstream media have as their mission to, to discover reality, to, to, to find out what's going on in an objective way. And of course, people say, oh, no one's objective, everybody has their own biases, but their, if their mission is to just to discover reality, um, then readers can know that that's their mission, and they they develop trust in certain sources, whether it's the New York Times or the Rutland Herald or the Washington Post or whatever. Um, and readers need to be able to trust somebody, um, um, and. And it requires a certain amount of news literacy. Um, there, are, there, are, there are good websites. There's good um, um, radio and television sources. And there's a lot of just stuff out there. It's just people's opinions. And, and um, the, there's a difference between um, searching for reality and trying to just discover reality and trying to skew reality, which is people with biases uh, and intent to create propaganda are trying to do. And so people, it's, it's a new era from the days when the daily newspaper is what you opened up to find out what was going on in the world. It's, it's true and it's confusing and it's scary. 
Well, two things on that. One, I was thinking that just, just what you said, that it's hard for people to know exactly where to go to get the news and to understand the difference between the process that goes through in newsrooms where a reporter does her research, comes back, fact checks, interviews a lot of people and puts an article together, which is then read by at least one, often two editors to make, to go over the facts, to look for bias, all of that stuff. You do not have that in these programs or <clears throat> publications that are dedicated to a particular cause, and it's more, everything is editorial. Everything is propaganda, not even, not even editorial. Uh, uh, yeah, I didn't view my editorials when I wrote them as propaganda. They were a point of view, mm -hmm. and I could, you know, I, I was discuss, sort of discussing with the reader my point of view, you know, to, can we talk about this? Rather than, you know, skewing falsehoods and, and trying to create propaganda, at the Rutland Herald, we had our editorial process, and if you wrote a story and I was editing it, I would ask you, where'd you, where'd you get this fact, you know, and we would hash over it. And you and I have both wrote, written for the big papers, mm -hmm. Boston Globe. I wrote uh, for a time uh, for the New York Times. Mm -hmm. um, um, and I can tell you, when I would file a story with the New York Times, it was scary because the editors would call me on every little fact, <laughs> and I had to be sure I had a basis for what I was writing, because they, 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 they were fact-based, you know. And the other point I wanted to make was the uh, entrance of the I into the stories, or my. I remember reading a New York Times magazine story in which it said, my notebooks are full of the stories of people who tell me, and my immediate reaction was, I don't care about the my in this, just tell me what these people said. But sometime that snuck in, the my and the I. And so that's when we began to lose this barrier between this is the story and this is story, which I collected. Right, right. Well, you know, sometimes I would, uh, uh, when I was being a news editor and I would be reading re reporters' stories, or, um, uh, say it would be on healthcare or something mm -hmm. like that, and I would ask the reporter, well, what do you think about this? And he'd go, I don't know. I, I don't know what my opinion is about this healthcare issue. I'm just... I've had time to think about what I think about it. I'm just reporting what's happening, what this person says and what this person says and the conflict and the issue. So often the reporter is, is naturally in the back seat because uh, his opinion about it is irrelevant. And what you're talking about, I think, is, you know, back in the 60s and 70s was the so-called new journalism, you know, where the, the journalist would be magazine stories or writing books of Hunter Thompson or Tom Wolfe or this sort of thing became uh, different than your mainstream news coverage. And it all, all came with a kind of skewed point of view and it was sometimes funny and sometimes enlightening, but different. If you want the news, you've got to go for the news.
So what is the future of objective journalism, David? Is it alive and well? And, and how do we know? <laughs> We're in a really uncertain time because uh, the news media are under attack, you know, being called the enemy of the state, so on. Mm -hmm. and, and yet, uh, um, I, I'm going to get political here for a minute. You know, a lot of people will tell me, people will talk to me about how they get very frustrated about how Trump gets so much coverage. And I, and I say, well, yeah, that's how come so many people know that he's a jerk? Because <laughs> he gets so much coverage, there he is. And so, um, in fact, the mainstream media is thriving in, in the sense that the New York Times and the Washington Post and some of the big papers are, people are really turning to them in large numbers because they need an outlet which will will pursue the facts. <laughs> and but there are economic factors that have caused uh, journalism to become concentrated with big papers like that and other organizations. You know, small papers like uh, Rutland Herald, the Times Argus, and the Burlington Free Press, they've all struggled with economic, the economic changes, you know. Uh, as I like to say, there have been more news reporters laid off than coal miners in the last 10 years. And just the economic changes, uh, huge shift of resources from small papers everywhere to Google and Facebook. Do people have the tools they need to differentiate the difference in these media? For example, so much radio talk shows that really, if you listen to them, which I try not to, uh, are just ravings and, and made up information. It's not even information, made up stories. Um, but there's a proliferation of them. Uh, yeah, I guess that's true, and that, that's what we're dealing with in this time. And um, I guess you just have to drive out falsehood of truth, you know, uh, in whatever medium you can find. Well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> Say it again. You just have to drive out falsehood of the truth. Thank you. <laughs> Beautiful. That's Yvonne Daly and David Motes, former reporters and editors from the Rutland Herald, discussing journalism and the marriage equality debates in Vermont in the early 2000s. Visit vermonthumanities.org democracy to watch all of the sessions recorded for our fall conference. And thanks for listening to The Portable Humanist. Visit our website at portablehumanist.org for a transcript of this episode and for more information about Vermont Humanities.